What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of THP Strength. Today, we are going to be talking about plyometrics, and we're going to be talking about part two and the specific progressions that we are going to go through. Some feedback we got from the last one from previous episodes was to use less fillers, so I tried not to say Other feedback we got was to tell the why in terms of why all the information matters. So obviously, we want you guys to be able to use this. We want it to be actionable. Today, we're but really- But more importantly, I want you all to call John out for all of his fillers. <laughs> I, do I, that first. I, I counted my fillers. I said, um, one time. Unless they're counting or like and and, but those are normal words you have to use in sentences. Fake news. Whatever. You can tell me later. <laughs> Anyways, back to me. Today, we're going to be talking about the specific plyometric progressions and the specific or the different approaches to programming plyometrics. There are, I think, roughly six or seven that I have written here in my notes for the podcast. And yesterday we talked about the specific physiology underlying them. Why that matters is because it will tell you how to set up an annual plan. If you don't understand the underlying principles of the plyometrics, it's very hard to know how to move across a month or a year in any athlete. That said, we talked about Burko Shansky yesterday and how he introduced shock training. And I'll dive into that kind of again and touch on some of the things that I previously talked about. But it matters because he was the forefather of it, had a lot of success with his athletes. They jumped very high after doing his training had a bunch of Olympic high jumpers and it's still a very valid approach to setting up plyometrics. There are people that still do his training setups or schemes because he did more research on athletes, some of it unethical than any other lab or research group in the entire world during any time frame in the history of track and field. So it's all still very relevant and that's why I want to dive into what he did. I said this previously, but he started with athletes that were researchers, I believe, and they were at an institution and they, he was a track coach while also doing research, I believe, took his athletes and put them through a variety of tests or a variety of plyometrics, basically, before they were coined plyometrics in a hallway and basically found that his athletes performed incredibly well. So the entire progression that he did was based on logistics. It was, hey, I don't have access to a track right now, and most track and field athletes run a ton. How am I supposed to make my athletes better if they can't run right now? I've got to do something else that's like running, but not quite running, that is going to improve their, athlete, their athleticism and get them better. And he progressively increased intensity, he increased the specificity, he decreased the volume over time, and followed a lot of these very basic known training laws, you could say. In a sense, he is the forefather of plyometrics and introduced shock training for, he was the first person to introduce shock training, which is you land, your body is, your muscles are shocked in a sense, and that gets you to jump higher. A couple things he observed, at the end of the year, I do depth jumps. Depth jumps are very intense and some athletes get hurt. You can't increase the depth jump height forever because athletes will get hurt. 
and injuries mean that athletes can't train, which means they're not able to progress. Probably the biggest piece that he advocated for was being able to handle the plyometrics that were being introduced in a very progressive and systematic way. I said this previously in the last episode, but his progression basically started with easy alternate leg bounding two to three times a week, some A skips and B skips, and then it would move into more intense bounding. Let me back up. He did strength work first, then he would build in extensive bounding and change the strength work a little bit, and then he would build in intensive bounding, which was more intense bounding, just like higher effort bounding, and eventually moved into the power work with kettlebells and barbell jump squats, and then eventually moved into depth jumps. So his entire progression follows the training principles and went from general, which is in the weight room, it's not specific, to something very specific, which is jumping. Why does it matter? Again, still a very valid approach to training, and it helps you guys understand how you should set up a training plan, which is general to specific, high volume to low volume, low intensity or lower intensity to higher intensities. That progression, those principles are maintained when you're looking at his progression. So that's one approach to plyometrics. We talked about all the physiology yesterday and why does it matter? Because if you understand the physiology, you can train better. If you're able to train better, you're going to adapt better. If you're able to do the training elements better, you're going to adapt better. If you understand how the body is producing force, you're going to be able to maximize your potential to be a better athlete. If you're a great athlete and you have a 40 inch vertical to go to that 41 or 42 means you have to do the things that make you good better. And if you don't fully understand what's happening internally, it's very difficult to learn how your body is to learn how to do the training stimuli better. That's probably the easiest way to explain it. If I know that a tenon is going to stretch a lot. If I run fast and plant my leg hard, then I'm going to do my best to run fast. And if I know that the pain in my knee is because the tendon is stretching fast, then I know that tendon load has to be progressed to where I can handle that stretching effect really quickly. So understanding these underlying principles gives you a better maybe background or training literacy that helps you perform your sessions in a more appropriate and accurate way. So that's why all this matters. I know a lot of people are like, why does it matter? Why, why do I, why should I care? You should care because <laughs> it's going to make you better at training and being better at training means you're going to eventually jump higher. Look at Isaiah. Isaiah does the same training plan that, or the same elements that people have in someone that jumps eight, 25 inches. And a lot of the times they're still squatting. But Isaiah is performing the squats better than that person that has an 18-inch vertical. He's driving the barbell up because he understands intent. If he has plyometrics in his plan or drops in his plan, he's going to make sure that he lands correctly because he understands how the Achilles stores energy. And he's going to perform the isometrics to the best of his ability because he understands how the tendon stores energy. And it just empowers you as an athlete. That's why all of this matters. All that said, if you're a coach, this can help you set up your annual plans. That's huge. Okay. Other progressions. Another really popular one that a lot of different track coaches use is the one that Tom Telez, who was Carl Lewis's coach, uh, 
Bushex Nader, who was the track and field coach at LSU, and Dan Paff, who coached Greg Rutherford. That's the most prominent one that comes to my mind because I know Greg, who is a 2012 gold medalist in the long jump, Olympic champion in the long jump, and 2016 was, I believe, silver or bronze medalist in the long jump. So obviously a very crazy athlete that Dan took from being very injured to being an elite and world-class long jumper. Why does that matter? It gives the progression credentials. It gives the progression a level of, I don't know what the correct word is here, reputability. Is that maybe a good word to, to describe it? That's right. It's yeah. like a real world. Okay. Real world. Credibility. Real gives word. it credibility. That's what I'm saying. It gives the progression credibility. That's the word I was looking for. So Boosh Nader's progression and Dan's progression and Tom Telez, they've all got elements that are very similar and some of them are a little bit of a spinoff, but they have the same underlying principles. How do they set up their progressions? Typically they start with a progression for approaches. And this is specific to track and field, but you could apply it to dunking as well. It's a little bit difficult in dunking to, to do. I've done it with Austin and Isaiah, but it doesn't work quite as well with those athletes because the approach is so much shorter in dunking than it is in track. And getting a 12-step or 16-step approach where your foot hits the board every time can be very difficult. Their progression helps maximize that as well. So if you're a track and field athlete, this might be something that you should tune into. And if you're someone that is dunking or whatever else, or just trying to jump higher in basketball, maybe you can pull some elements from this and use them in your own training. But he has a progression for the approaches and then for the takeoff and then for the full approach plus the takeoff and then the landing phase and long jump, triple jump, and high jump. That's one progression. He starts with short approach jumps and then full approach runs and then brings those together so that you bring the full approach run into longer and longer, progressively longer and longer takeoff or approach distances for takeoffs. If you're a, for example, if you're a long jumper, why this matters is you wouldn't want to start with your full approach jump at the beginning of the year. One, because how can you progress from a full approach jump? At, how can you move forward? How can you make a full approach jump harder? It's already as hard as it can possibly be. So it's very difficult to compound the training effect. You, you haven't trained to train in a sense, meaning if I were trying to improve my power, I can get better power outputs if I improve my max strength. So it's better if I improve my max strength first so that I can get better power training in the future. If I start with power training and didn't do the max strength before it, that power training stimulus isn't going to be as effective because I didn't raise the roof on my max strength. The same thing applies here. If I start with a full approach jump, then I can't progress to a fuller full approach jump. I'm already at the end of the progression. So how do I maximize the full approach jump? I need to get better at doing a short approach jump and adding steps and then work my way back to that full approach jump. I need to improve my acceleration and my top speed so that I can handle more speed into the approach or I need more eccentric strength at the board or isometric strength based on our conversation yesterday or slow concentric strength to maximize my force at the board at takeoff. All that said, that's one progression that he has. So at the beginning of the year, they'll do short approach jumps and pop-ups. Then they'll do full approach jumps. 
or full approach runs, and then they will blend in a few reps of full approach jumps and then more and more reps of full approach jumps and take out the short approach jumps towards the end of the year because you don't want to be doing you've already progressed on from that element and they're getting they're addressing all the same physiological principles at the end of the year and with full approach jump that they were at the short approach jump <clears throat> that's one element <clears throat> in the progression that he does another element is the hopping progression boo dan i'm assuming tom Tellez, but i don't know they have a specific hopping progression that they will do which starts with right, right, left, left, right, 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 left, left, left for different distances at a very low intensity level where they're focusing on rolling through the forefoot. And they coach rolling through the forefoot because it's a very low velocity takeoff. And when you jump off one foot, you strike on the heel. Why do you strike on the heel? Because your Achilles and your gastroc and your soleus is not strong enough to run full speed and land on the ball of your foot. Why does that matter? If you tried to land on the ball of your foot and you weren't strong enough, you would tear your Achilles. <laughs> That's why you don't want to do your plyometrics or hopping or single leg takeoffs on a forefoot landing unless you were to in some way lower the intensity. So if you were to do easy hopping or whatever else, in my opinion, you could land on the ball of the foot to get more Achilles or gastroc load but they don't coach that because they're trying to pattern rolling through the forefoot as much as possible. So that when you get to the end of the year and you're doing the max effort hops or doing the max effort jumping, you've already learned how to contact on the heel. You've done chunking, right? Started with something easy, add an element, start with something easy, add an element, start with something easy, add an element. And you've built on top of that, these blocks of progression. You could think about it. Do you ever see the little blocks that toddlers use and they build, little towers or whatever you have your or a pyramid you have that like base row and then you build on top of that and you build on top of that and you build on top of that but if you don't build that foundation it's very difficult to get to the end of the year and just throw that in there you're probably not going to be able to do it you're not going to be able to piece it together so building that foundation helps you later on so that's one reason why they'll teach that they'll teach after that progressively adding speed or they will do standing bounds so they'll do standing long jump and then standing triple jump. And I do this in my training too. And then they'll do standing right, 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 or standing left, left, left. And then they'll progress into running into standing, running into right, 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 or running into left, left, left outside of those standing bounds. And after that, they'll typically take out those plyos because if you have those in too late in the year, you're going to get hurt. Why does that all matter? Or why is that progression good? Because it mitigates your risk of injury. It teaches the, you the fundamentals of movement. It teaches you how to use your hip, your knee, and your ankle in a very proximal to distal manner, meaning you start with the hip, recruit the knee, and then the ankle and the foot and the toes. And that's important because, again, at the end of the year, you need to be able to do that well without thinking about it. It needs to be automatic because everything's happening so fast. So if you don't start with something very fundamental, you're not going to be able to just do it at the end of the year, you have to start with easy things and progressively make them harder. I always give the example. I started training my dog. It's easy in the context of my apartment living room when I'm laying on the floor or sitting on the floor and have a treat in my hand for her to do what I ask when I say come or sit if I'm two feet away from her. I can't just run outside to the dog park and expect her with no treat in my hand and no leash to tell her come and sit and expect her to do it. Same thing's true of athletes. 
you have to start in a very controlled setting and progressively make it harder so that when they are in that chaotic environment, they do everything you've asked them to do correctly. That is the nature of motor learning. That's one progression. That's one option you can do. And it works super well. You've seen elite jumpers do that progression and jump 28 feet in long jump. Or <laughs> you've seen guys high jump seven, four, or whatever else, or eight, I guess close to eight foot probably. I, I don't know. They're not really, I wouldn't say that those coaches are super notable in high jump, but they're super notable in long jump and sprints. Maybe something to note. Another different progression or a different approach. That's So the two approaches I've covered so far, Virko Shansky, Forefather, Boosh Schexnader, Dan Paff, very popular, common approach to plyometrics. The third one I'll go over is my mentor, Mike, and how he views plyometrics, which is that they are principles-based. This is one of my favorite approaches to it because it teaches you that no matter what you're doing, you can create whatever plyo you want or you can pick a plyo, but you can do plyos differently depending on what your talent level is, depending on what your coordination is. And if you're a coach watching that athlete do the plyo, or if you're an athlete watching back yourself do these plyos, you can understand that not all plyos are created equally. Just because it says a bound, not all plyos are created equally for every person. If I have Hunter do a single leg hop with a and he does it with a really long ground contact time, really soft landings on the ball of his foot. That's very different than when I do a hop and I have a very stiff hip, knee, and ankle, and I'm landing and taking off really quickly. They on the on paper it both says hop. But if Hunter does his hop such that he's not getting near the intensity that I am and has the same volume that I do, I did the same volume that he did, but my intensity is way higher. That's going to impact the rest of my training. It's going to impact my adaptation. It's going to put me at a higher risk of injury. And if I go to the next element on the piece of paper that Hunter has on his piece of paper, I'm going to be trashed and he's not. So a week from now, I might be hurt if I keep doing that progression. Hunter might be fine. So you need to understand these principles because they'll help you understand how your training is supposed to be completed. It'll help you put plyometric progressions together yourself. It'll help you understand how to stay healthy as well as improve your performance long-term. We've seen guys do this progression and get to the point where their RSI is like four or their stiffness is super high. And when that happens, that's where you can high jump seven, eight and have a 15 inch vertical. <laughs> it matters because this is how you develop a 50 inch vertical off one foot. If you're better at doing plyos and you don't get hurt, you can, bounce off the floor. You can jump like Nick Briz. Back to the progression. It's a holistic approach and it maybe ignores one thing, which is the leverages that happen as your joint axis moves away from the line of action. But other than that, I really, really like it. Why does it matter if it ignores the joint leverages? Because if you ignore the leverages, then you're not taking into consideration the internal loading that is probably happening for something that might seem like an easy plyo according to this progression. That's maybe the one flaw, but I'll tell you how it works. So the first thing is the intensity is dictated by five variables, which is one, the ground contact time. If you have a very short ground contact time, you're going to be like a billiard ball. That's going to increase the intramuscular forces and the tugging on the tendon and going to increase the intensity. The next one is whether it's single or double leg. If you do a double leg plyo versus a single leg plyo, you have two feet in contact at the ground which is going to decrease 50%. 50% of the load is split between the two feet. 
if you, the, so the stiffness or the ground contact time, whether it is double leg or single leg, I got to think of, oh, that's me telling me to take my dog out. Oh, I got to remember these off the top of my head. I should have wrote them out. I got to remember, oh, whether you have a run in. If you have a run into a plyometric, that's going to increase the intensity drastically because the forces that you're going to see at landing are going to be way higher. The forces are higher at way, or if the forces are way higher, then you're going to see higher loading, higher loading. You can adapt better to it, but you also are at a higher risk of getting hurt. That's another way to increase it. Whether or not you have a lot of vertical displacement or a little bit, the fall, the farther you fall from the higher, the intensity of the plyometric. Those are the big, I guess I would say the big things to consider. Maybe the last one would be whether it is, whether it is a repetitive plyometric or whether it is a singular plyometric or whether it is repetitive jumping or whether it is a single takeoff and landing. If you're looking at those five elements that I just mentioned, you can very easily determine the intensity of anything that you are doing that you deem to be a plyometric, which is something that has the stretch working cycle. If you're able to do that, then you can set up an annual plan where you start from general to specific and you start with low intensity to high intensity. So if you have double leg hops, you could do a double leg hop where you're squatting down a lot and, or double leg jumps, I guess you could call them by Matt's definition. But if you're doing rocket jumps, basically, and you're squatting down a lot when you land, the time between takeoffs is really long. That means that the intensity's lower. It's double leg, so the intensity's lower. You have no horizontal run-in, so the intensity's lower. <laughs> and it's a very soft, it's a very soft landing. Is it repetitive? Yes. But it is relatively easy. It's a relatively easy plyometric by that definition. In contrast, if you're doing running into a single leg vertical hops, that is going to be a very intense plyometric because you have a run in, which means it's going to be more intense. You're hopping vertically very high and landing vertically very high, which means it's going to be very intense. If you land with a stiff leg and try to get on and off the ground really quickly, it's going to be a very intense plyometric. And the height that you're falling from or dropping from is also going to make it a very intense plyometric. Imagine running full speed off a ramp and then landing on a single leg and trying to hop again. That would basically be the most intense plyometric you could possibly do. And then imagine landing with a completely straight leg. <laughs> that would be like the most intense thing you could possibly do. If you were like, imagine the snowboard ramps, like you ran down a ramp and then jumped off of something and then landed on a single leg and tried to jump again. You, you basically wouldn't be able to make a more intense plyometric. That's why triple jumpers have the most intense, the most in, intense event in track and field because they're running full speed into a single leg landing and takeoff where they are required to have very short ground contact times and very high vertical displacements. Look at Jay Clark. He's one of the freakiest jumpers on the planet. One of the freakiest athletes on the planet. What event did he do? Triple jump. Makes perfect sense to me. Everything that you need to be a freak athlete in any sport is the same thing that you are maxing out when you triple jump. If you want to cut hard and fast, if you want to jump super high off one leg or two legs, being able to triple jump is going to train all of those elements. <laughs> so why does that matter? Again, 
you're able to set up an annual plan where you're able to progress, see better adaptation, and not get hurt. So that's another way that you can set up your plyometric progression. And like I said, the one downside is what if you landed in a half squat? You, you were like, you jumped in the air and then tucked yourself into a little half squat in the air, like you're sitting on a chair and then you landed and then exploded back up out of that position. And you had very short ground contact times and landed very stiff. How would that change the intensity of that plyometric? Because we didn't talk about the, how you land, how you land also matters because it's going to change the external moments, which are going to change your body's, which is going to change how much intramuscular force you need to generate to overcome that external torque. That means you could pull a muscle. That means you could increase that plyometrics intensity drastically. You could have way higher intramuscular forces, which means you might see way better adaptation and obviously better adaptation means you're going to jump higher in the future. So that's maybe one element that it doesn't address that I would probably throw in there, but still, again, one of my favorite progressions. It's very research. It's multifactorial and it's very research-based, which is also why I like it. So it would work for anyone. <laughs> that progression would, no matter who you are, if it's principles-based, it's going to work for everyone. Hunter, you said this the other day. You were like, or I asked you, why did you pick us? And you said, I didn't want to pick someone that was an outlier. I wanted to know, what type of training will get anyone better, whether it's an elite athlete or Joe Blow or whatever else. I want to know the guy that can take any athlete and make them better with a training stimulus. That's why I like that progression. And that's why I had all the progressions because, again, they're all research-backed as long as you do them correctly and you put them in place correctly. But there are two more that I'll go over. So bring it back. We talked about Verkoshansky. We talked about Boosh Schexnader, Dan Path, their progression. This is the LSU coach, Carl Lewis's coach, those guys. We talked about Mike Young and his progression, his credentials, PhD in biomechanics, shot put biomechanist, coaches the North Carolina Courage, coaches a post-collegiate track and field group. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person. Most of what I know has come from him, and he's just he's a great coach. <clears throat> Next, I guess there's three of these, four of these left, but I'll try to cover them quickly. How much time do we have left, Hunter? Or where are we at? Well, how long do you want to go? How, where are we at right now? We're at 27 minutes. Oh, we're fine. <laughs> so the next, per, the next person that I really respect is Thomas Kortenbeck. And he is the coach of the Danish national team. Why do I like Thomas? Because he takes individuals who I would consider to be not very genetically freaky athletes. They're definitely talented, but at any level, he's able to develop those athletes and he is brilliant, a brilliant mind in jumping. He knows so much about the physiology and much of what I learned now comes from Thomas. So I respect the hell out of him and I'm very grateful for him reaching out to me and always being willing to ask me questions in a diplomatic way and challenge my thinking in a diplomatic way that pushes me to be better. And I know that's why he's doing is to get me to critically think. And I've just really appreciated him pushing me to, to be a better coach. That said, he coaches... Yannick Lawson, he's five foot eight in high jumps, I believe seven six or seven seven, which is absolutely insane. He can power clean, I think 140 kilos, well over 300. He can hang clean well over 300 pounds, and he weighs 150 pounds. He's one of the most powerful athletes on the planet. I have seen Yannick do a step up at 600 pounds or something like that on a box this high or this high. He's just able to step right up on it. 
pretty easily do reps of it. I've seen Greg Rutherford do that. It might've been 700 pounds that Yannick did. And he's super small, like again, 150 pounds. One of the most impressive freakiest jumpers I've ever seen on the planet. Funny story, Yannick jumped two meters when he was 14. That's 6'6". Six, six. I have jumped 6'6 six, six one time as an adult. <laughs> Yannick has now jumped 7'6 or 7'7", seven, seven, as I said. He used to talk shit to me on YouTube because I had a YouTube video of me high jumping 5'10 when I was 14. And Yannick would post on everything and basically be like, you suck. I'm the best. I've jumped two meters and I'm 14. It's like, I have a 15 inch vertical and I'm 14. So it was super funny because now like 10, over 10 years later, I mentioned it to him and he's like, ah, oh, yeah, sorry about that. I was <laughs> like, oh, I was delusional. <laughs> like I thought I was the best leader. Like he's, it was just funny being able to talk back with him, or being able to have that conversation. But yeah, respect the hell out of those two guys. And I, another guy that they work with is Lars. So I'm telling you guys this, so you can go follow them, read their content and really pay attention to what they're saying. Because I, if I'm considering them to be one of the best coaches on the planet, you should also be considering if you trust me and you trust my word, and I'm saying these people are better than me, you should probably go consume as much of their content as you possibly can. Back to his progression. Thomas is somewhat secretive about what he does. And that is why I'm so curious about it. That's a European thing I've noticed. But he seems to do the same principles, so general specific. He really values increasing intensity over time and decreasing volumes and doing a lot of plyometrics. I would say out of all the coaches that I've seen, Thomas does the most in the way of volume. I believe he does some level of what I would consider to be a moderate to intense plyometric every day, all year. Even his hops and skipping and things like that, I would even consider to be somewhat intense and he would have them in every single day all year. That's great because it can make you a freak of nature athlete, but you have to be very careful about the volumes and it can be very difficult to write an annual plan where you're able to not get hurt and maintain the ability to handle those volumes as well as improve and progress over time. I've tried to do it a couple times. Every time I get hurt, you can't work on approach jumps really until much later in the season. If you're going to do that setup, if you're me, this is maybe one downside. If you're not an elite athlete and you're doing this, you probably don't have the luxury to work on your technique as well as improve your stiffness in plyometrics. Again, plyometrics are going to improve your stiffness, which is going to make you better at jumping higher off one leg. But if you're not practicing jumping, you're not able to actualize that. Meaning you can't connect the dots. Your body can't connect the dots. You need to do both. That's the one downside, but I really like it a lot. Again, I can't really discuss it because I don't fully understand it. I've spent a lot of time researching it and trying to understand it. Seems as though they do horizontal approach jumps for their vertical jump, like for their high jumpers. They do, which is a little bit different. They do a lot of single leg depth dro drops and jumps again. They do a lot of stiffness hops where they measure RSI and those are all very intense plyometrics. They'll do them barefoot or they'll do them in skateboarding shoes because those are flat shoes. And if you can use a flat shoe, you can increase the stretch on your Achilles. If you increase the stretch on your Achilles, why does it matter? That's going to make you jump higher in the future. 
The downside is you can get hurt doing that. And I've experienced that myself. That's why you have to really monitor your volumes and have a good long-term athletic development plan if that's what you're going to do. And I don't know what theirs is, to be honest. It is a total mystery. (laughs) I would assume that it follows all the same training principles, but they have a lot of unique plyometrics that I've never been able to integrate into my training because I've, I haven't even thought of them (laughs) and yeah, respect the hell out of him. Super smart guy. One approach maybe to look into if you guys are interested. Next person I'll discuss is Matt Watson and Eric Littleton or little, I think is what his name is. I think Eric was Matt's coach. Matt Watson has been on the podcast before. We'll definitely have him on in the future. And Matt is currently coaching me. Why do I like Matt's approach? Because Eric made Matt a freak of nature. Matt's RSI was like five or over five. Matt and Eric are well-respected and are very successful at developing very elastic and powerful athletes, which I respect because when I look at European high jumpers, they all tend to be speed jumpers who are super elastic and clearing two meters is super easy for them, (laughs) which in America is we have a way bigger talent pool and that's not necessarily the case at the high school level. So I've always been super curious about what they're doing over there. What are, what is happening over there in Europe that these guys are doing that they're seeing way better success and improving the stiffness of their athletes tendons to a greater degree than maybe what we're doing here where football and basketball are everything. So I've, where I reached out to them or Matt or Matt reached out to me and always challenged me to be better and would always challenge my thinking. And Matt really has a good understanding of the anticipate pre anticipate pre anticipation, which is important because it's going to teach you how to, it's going to make it, I guess understanding it doesn't really help, but in a sense it does because it makes you more patient. If you understand that the only way to get better is to do the thing you want to get better at and do it often. And that's how you wire the subconscious anticipation that happens when you jump, you're going to, you're going to improve. So Matt basically advocates for four different tiers of plyometrics. There are big range of motion, long ground contact ones. There are medium ground contact time plyometrics, and there are short ground contact time plyometrics. And they're at varying effort levels which is also something that I like. And he progresses them accordingly. He actually follows a lot of the principles that I mentioned that Mike uses. And I like it because he builds in a lot of approaches. He builds in a lot of hopping and skipping and unique plyometrics that I couldn't even think of. I wouldn't be able to even think up. So I really like what he does there. My dog is literally howling right now. (laughs) And there's two more that I'll discuss and then I'll end it there. But maybe before I get into those, Hunter, I don't know if you followed everything that I've said. I don't know if I've cut out on your end, but I'm just going to be listening to this about 18 times. (laughs) I've tried to make it very easy to understand. (laughs) (laughs) So last two ones, what I first was introduced with or one plyometric progression is power plyometrics. I love power plyometrics because it was created by Jim Radcliffe, who was the SNC coach at Oregon with their track and field program. If you don't know about Oregon, that's the home of Nike, 
which says a lot because track is huge there and it's where you get a lot of great athletes to come and they obviously selected him for a reason. Let me shut my door one second. Hunter, entertain them. <laughs> so that was quite a brain dump. Thinking that there's going to be a lot of people that are listening and re-listening to this one multiple times over. And here he comes to round us out. I'm back. What'd you say? I just said that we're going to be listening to it a few times. <laughs> so the reason I love power plyometrics, it was my first introduction to plyometrics. It taught me the principles of plyometrics and it matters because again, if you know the principles and the underlying elements that go into plyometrics, you can manipulate them and create an annual plan that works for you with whatever weight room you're doing or whatever season you're in or whatever else. So it also gave me a very good training inventory in my head. It taught me hundreds of plyometrics that were well progressed and helped me to be a very good athlete at a young age and taught me how to be coordinated and taught me how to uh, apply force. It was a 12 week program that I did twice a week. I would do the plyos. I would split up half and half or however, and it worked. It made me very fast. It stiffened my tendons up, made me able to jump higher off one foot. It was just a really effective progression. And I really liked the plyometrics that he did. Biggest thing that I learned from him were the underlying principles of plyometrics, which was spatial overload, loaded overload, meaning you have a weight in your hand and the velocity of the overload. So how quick you're, you're loading. He would use all three of those principles to move across the force velocity continuum and address all of the different elements that you need in a specific sport. And he had different progressions for different sports. And it was, it's just a really sound progression that in my opinion is tried and true. The guy's was 50 probably when he created the videos for that book and he's bouncing around like a freak. He's just a great athlete too at his age, which says a lot. I think obviously there's a lot of elements of that maybe are genetics, but those are, that's what I learned from it. I also learned about the stretch reflex from that. I learned about the stretch shortening cycle and I reread that chapter over and over again. If you guys want to fully understand plyometrics, it's a great book to start with. The stretch reflex is now potentially not something that happens because it's too slow, but still something good to understand. The stretch shortening cycle is, as I mentioned in the previous episode, if you want to understand the stretch shortening cycle, go listen to the mechanics of muscular tendinous mechanics that I talked about in the previous episode. The last one that I will talk about is Joel and Just Fly. Joel's been around the game for a very long time. He is a great coach and his progression is very, I, I don't I, it's very intense. <laughs> the old one, the new one I haven't really seen. I know he does a lot with Adrian Barr. I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan, but I respect it. I think a lot of people, I respect Joel. I think Joel's brilliant. So maybe I'm too dumb to understand it and I'm way back way farther back, but something I'm not super keen on at the moment. That said, his progression in the past had a lot of contract, relax elements to it. It had progressing to depth jumps. The strength work was very Verkoshansky-ish, I guess is maybe how I would describe it. He did a lot of pistol squats. It seems as though his book involved 
and now it's different. I'm sure of it. I'm sure his training is different now and his progressions are different now. So this is when he wrote, I believe it's vertical something or another. I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it was his book from 2015 or 14. So it's five or six years old. He's definitely, Joel's always changing. So I'm sure it's different now, but he did a lot of very intense Achilles plyometrics. Very, very, very intense Achilles plyometrics, which is good if you're a one foot jumper and it probably worked for him and helped him jump way higher. And he's developed his athleticism probably more than a lot of other people. So I, you know, I respect him a lot and how he became a really great high jumper, but it was so intense. <laughs> I tried it and I made it through one week before my knees and my Achilles were about to explode. Now going back, if I were to use the training setup that I do now and load management and a lot of the principles of Jill Cook which is tried and true and the best thing you can do for your connective tissue and your knees and your Achilles better than anything else out there. And when I say anything else out there, I am including a very prominent person that people look to for knee ability, which is no, Joe no, Cook no. is better. <laughs> I'm just saying, I think I could handle it now if I were on load management, but it was effective and that's probably all I can really say about it. And it, it would have been effective if I could handle it. I can't really disclose anymore because <laughs> I don't really know. But those are all the different progressions I have seen in a very myopic. Is that the word I'm looking for? I don't know what the word I'm looking for, Hunter, is. I don't know either. What are you trying to say? If you were on a helicopter and you looked at something. <laughs> Holistic, holistic, maybe is the word I'm looking for view. And if you guys are curious about those specific progressions or you want to know more about them, make sure that you comment on and leave a comment like the, the video. You guys know that in the first 24 hours, I am great about getting back to the comment section. So make sure that you guys leave as many comments. It also helps the algorithm so that we can push out this content to as many people as possible and educate them and educate the community. If you guys are looking for coaching and you guys are trying to be a better athlete, go to thbstrength.com, set up a call and you can get on a, a call with Hunter or Austin. They'll educate you about it and we'll get you rolling if that's something that you're interested in. Anything else, Hunter? Like, comment, subscribe. I already said Listen that. on Apple Podcasts, <laughs> leave a review, helps us out. And until next time, this is part two. Peace out.